What injustice bothers you the most? Human trafficking, racial discrimination, child abuse. We can argue definitions and possible solutions. We can be optimistic about change or pessimistic. But as Christians, we can agree on one thing. The greatest injustice in history was the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter said it well in Acts 3, 14 to 15, as he spoke to his own fellow Israelites responsible for this crime. You deny the Holy One and just, and the just, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, and kill the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. The greatest injustice in the world became the greatest hope of the world, as you know. But we should rewind. Last time we looked at the three denials of Peter that took place within about three hours. Today we're looking at six trials of Jesus within about six hours. Let's talk about those numbers for a second. So we established the six-hour frame based on John 19, 14. In that verse, Pilate's making his final verdict on Jesus early in the morning. It's said to be the sixth hour when this happened. Many take this to be 6 a.m. based on the Roman time system starting the day at midnight. But I think a better option is to interpret the sixth hour as the sixth hour of trials and persecutions Christ suffered before the crucifixion. It would take that many hours of social engineering and manipulation to get Jesus hung on the cross. There are many formalities and procedures to follow, hence the six trials in those six hours. Three were religious, three were civil, all were illegal. Let me tell you about the first two that took place overnight before we read about the remaining four that took place during the day. First, after his arrest, Jesus was taken before Annas, according to John 18, 12 to 24. Now, Annas was not the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas, his son-in-law. But Annas held all the power behind the scenes. Even though, as Josephus reports, the Romans forced him to step down from his formal position decades ago, Annas kept it in the family. That way he can work behind and through his successors. No wonder Luke reports how essentially both he and Caiaphas were high priests. And of course, both perceived Jesus as a threat. Annas and his family enjoyed a monopoly of temple commerce known as bazaars or boots of the sons of Annas. You recall Jesus attacked these operations Our Lord endangered all that Annas has built for decades. So he and his son-in-law were determined to get rid of him. But Annas cannot get Jesus to say anything, to incriminate himself, so he sends him to Caiaphas onto the next trial. Now more leaders are present, so this one's better than the previous one-man court of Annas. But it was still an illegal gathering with so many violations of judicial procedures and jurisprudence. 
I'll just name four from Jewish oral tradition. One, the ruling court of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, could not gather until after the morning sacrifice. Two, judgment of capital crimes must take place during daytime. Three, a defendant may be acquitted the same day, but the death sentence must wait until the next day. Four, major trials were avoided on feast days or on the eve of the Sabbath. But here they are in the darkness of the night, the Supreme Court of the Jews, the great Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. It consisted of 71 members made up of chief priests, elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, with the high priest Caiaphas presiding. But they could not find a reason to execute Jesus. False witnesses came forward but contradicted each other. They thought they had something when two agreed on something Jesus said years ago, back in John 2, 19. The liars took Christ's words out of context to make it seem like he came to destroy the temple. In reality, he was talking about the destruction of his body and his resurrection. So they got nothing. Jesus gives them nothing. They're without evidence. Caiaphas loses his patience. He takes a more direct approach, abusing his authority as high priest. He places Jesus under oath and asks him directly, Are you Christ, the Messiah? They need him to commit the high crime of claiming to be God's son. Jesus tells them the truth by pointing them to a passage in Daniel. And that passage is a vision of fiery thrones, heavenly courts, God the judge, the ancient of days. It's the prophecy of the end when other kingdoms fall, but there's an everlasting kingdom that outlasts them all. So here's a portion of this vision that relates to Christ in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I'll just read it for you. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given the dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Our Lord is warning this earthly court that there's a greater judgment to come. But they're blind to this truth. Caiaphas, instead of rending his heart, rends his garments. The high priest wasn't allowed to do this normally, but in his eyes and in the eyes of the court, Jesus broke the law of Leviticus 24, committed blasphemy against the name of the Lord, making himself equal with God. They got just what they needed to move towards the next third trial. As they wait for the morning, they spat on him, beat him, struck him with the palm, of their hands. They blindfolded and mocked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? They spoke blasphemously against him. As we saw last time, Luke 22, 63-65, records this violent end of trial number two. In today's passage, verses 66-71, to Luke tells us about trial number three, and then in chapter 23, we have trials number four, five, and six. So altogether, we'll see four legal episodes in today's passage. So let's read Luke 22, 66 
So chapter 23, verse 25. If you're following along in your pew Bible, it's in page 740. Luke 22, 66 to 23, 25. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief and priests, Chief priests and scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Again, there are four trials here. And there's a constant, whether it's before the Sanhedrin, Pilate or Herod, the chief priests are right there opposing Jesus. Note that word accused in 
verse 2, 10, and 14 of chapter 23. And one verdict after another, we see both Jewish and Gentile courts rejecting him. They represent a fallen world system that stands united against Jesus. And I want to talk about why. Why the world rejects Jesus. And four reasons corresponding to the four scenes. The world rejects Jesus for, one, his title of Christ, God's Son. His title of Christ, God's Son. That's verses 66 to 71 of chapter 22. Two, his authority as king of the nations. His authority as king of the nations. That's verses 1 to 5 of chapter 23. Three, his resolve as God's servant. His resolve as God's servant. That's verses 6 to 12. And four, his innocence as perfect man. His innocence as perfect man in verses 13 to 25. First, at the court of Sanhedrin, we see that the world rejects Jesus for his title of Christ, God's Son. I won't spend too much time on the details as this trial number three looks nearly identical to trial number two. The key difference is the timing. The night has passed, and now it's dawn. It turns out that the previous trial number two was basically a rehearsal for the live morning performance. Again, according to their own oral law, The previous trial by night doesn't count. So as the sun rises, they urgently want Jesus to say he's Christ and officially accuse him of blasphemy. Now, before Jesus repeats the citation of Daniel 7, he exposes their motives in 67 to 68, verse 67 to 68. He's saying whatever Jesus says doesn't matter. They won't believe. They won't answer him. And they won't let him go. These teachers are not teachable. They're fools who despise wisdom and instruction. Their hearts are dull, ears hard of hearing, eyes closed. They may open their Bibles, but as Paul says later, their minds are blinded. A veil lies on their heart. And it remains unlifted in their reading of the Old Testament. They lost the plot while reading God's word, so they plot against God's own son. They think they understand the office of Christ, and they think they understand Jesus, but they misunderstand both. If they truly understood the law of Moses, they would have enjoyed grace and truth through Christ. So at this point, there is no point in arguing for Jesus. But Jesus does give them just enough words to continue his path to the cross. And that's why in verse 70, he won't deny his title as Christ, God's son. Again, the court believes Jesus has blasphemed, making himself equal with God. They swiftly vote for his execution. They bound him, led him away, and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, who can crucify him. Now, quick question for us to consider If these Jews simply wanted Jesus dead, why didn't they just stone him like they tried earlier 
in John 10, or they did later with Stephen in Acts 7? There are at least two answers. First, the fear of man still kept them from such a direct public act, public attack against the popular preacher. Recall that the raising of Lazarus had just happened. The popularity of Jesus was an all-time high during the Passover, no less. That's why they had to catch him in the absence of the multitude. And just as they used Judas Iscariot to arrest Jesus, they'll use Pontius Pilate to kill Jesus. Secondly, the enemies of Christ hated Jesus so much that they believed a quick death was too good for him. They wanted to humiliate him utterly, thoroughly, publicly. But little did they know, even that horrible capital punishment of crucifixion would fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. Now, I won't get into that right now, but check out John 18, 31 to 32, and Galatians 3, 13 to 14. But before the crucifixion can happen, the Jewish authorities had to change the charge against Jesus from blasphemy to treason. Now they're just blatantly lying. Jesus never perverted the nation. He never forbade paying taxes to Caesar. Recall what he really said in chapter 20, verse 25. Renders, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But the enemies did speak one truth, even if they didn't believe it. Jesus is the king of the Jews. We know by faith he's in fact the king of all the nations, but the world rejects him and his authority. So we move from the religious court to the civil court in Luke 23. Here's a little background on Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of Judea. A few decades ago, the region was ruled by one of Herod the Great's son, Herod Archelaus. But he was not a good leader, and so he was deposed at 6 AD. That's when the Romans stepped in and appointed their own rulers. Pilate was the fifth governor since then. By the time we meet him in the Bible, he's been at this for years now, since 26 AD. He had to deal with the zealous, passionate religious Jews regularly. I say by this point, he knew them well enough discern that they are motivated by envy. So he's cynical and skeptical. Can you blame him? Pilate directly asks Jesus whether he's the king of the Jews. Our Lord does not deny or resist. He does not debate the charges thrown at him. And Pilate marveled at this. But still, there isn't enough sufficient reason for executions. So Pilate declares the innocence of Christ in verse 4. I find no fault in this man, he says. But in response, the mob doubles down on the treason charge and gets more specific about where he spread his teachings. That's when Pilate gets an idea. Jesus was a Galilean. Galilee was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, and it just happens that Herod was in town. So on to trial number five. We'll see there that the world rejects Jesus for his resolve as God's servant. So here we're reintroduced to Herod Antipas. He was one of the four rulers of the Herodian family after 4 BC when Herod the Great died. We saw him back in 
uh, chapter 3, verse 18 to 20. And he had a complicated relationship with John the Baptist. The forerunner of Jesus confronted him about all his evils, especially his incestuous and adulterous relationship with Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Antipas locked up John in prison, and at first he was afraid to kill him because of his holy character and popularity. But in the end, the grudge of Herodias and the foolish oath of Herod at a party led to John's demise. So the ruler saved his face but cut off John's head. Later, as Jesus became popular, Herod at one point thought that he's John raised from the dead back with miraculous powers. But this wasn't genuine awe as much as it was curiosity. Eventually, Herod and his followers developed ill will against Jesus. At one point, the Pharisees warned Christ, this is back in Luke 13, 31, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. But now here's a chance for Jesus to find clemency from Herod. Remember, the Jewish leaders can't stand him. Pilate doesn't want to be bothered with him. Herod, on the other hand, was favorably, favorably disposed, disposed, um, disposed towards him. What's more, exceedingly glad to see him. Now the patriarch gets to see for himself what Jesus looks like and what he can do. He begins the questioning, verse 9. Now, if our Lord was, if he were to play along and entertain Herod, he could get him on his side, buy time, or get out of trouble. But that's no longer an option. Christ has made his decision. Our Lord loved the praise of God more than the praises of men. He has said to the Father, Behold, I have come to do your will. He has already prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. He was resolved to be the servant of the heavenly king more than a friend of earthly kings. Christ pays the price for this resolve of his, when he doesn't give what Herod wants, when he doesn't speak up to defend himself, the void is filled with vehement accusations. Antipas and his men also join in, humiliating, attacking Jesus. Herod dresses him up in a gorgeous robe and sends him back to Pilate. And we're told in verse 12 that this day of Christ's death was the birthday of their friendship. We're not sure exactly what divided them initially, but Luke 13.1 gives us a clue. It says there that Pilate killed Galileans, people under Herod's authority. That was probably done without talking to Herod first. Pilate made up for this by sending Christ a prized prisoner as sort of an olive branch. Now as he sent back, we're on to the last trial. That's where we see Christ's innocence as man. Now, this will be the last stop in the legal proceedings before the cross. It's decision time for Pilate. Still, there's no crime deserving of crucifixion here, but he's facing a wall of opposition. The tumult was rising, and Pilate could not prevail. To make things worse, he gets an ominous message from his wife, 
as we see in Matthew 27, 19, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now what's unique in Luke is how he records Pilate's repeated efforts to release Jesus and declare his innocence. Now both Luke and John narrate that Pilate declared Christ's innocence three times, but Luke's even more emphatic. For example, look at the word find. While the crowds say, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding taxes, saying he is Christ, Pilate says in verse 4, I find no fault in this man. Verse 4, I have no fault in this I have found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. Verse 14, I have found no reason for death in him. Verse 22. Luke also records that three times Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He says in verse 16, I will therefore chastise him and release him. Verse 20 again, Pilate is wishing to release Jesus. Once more, the governor says in verse 22, I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Luke is emphasizing the innocence of Jesus through Pilate's words and actions. But still, the crowds demand, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. Think about it sometimes, as Samuel Crossman once wrote, a murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. Pilate could not prevail over the voice of the mob, So there's a guilty sentence pronounced over the innocent man. Greatest injustice in human history. The strange world that rejects our Lord. So let's bring together all four trials now. Now Satan has bound together both Jewish and Gentile authorities against Christ What can we learn from their mistakes in judgment? There's two points I want to end with. First, realize that we're no better than these rulers. Now, you might think you would have done better if you were Caiaphas, if you were Pilate, if you were Herod. But remember, apart from God's grace, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, walking in the course of this world, It's a world that lies under the sway of the wicked one. And it was the best of us, not the worst of us, that crucified the Lord of glory. Left to our own and belonging to the world, we're no better than them. We, the people, plot a vain thing. We rebel against God and his anointed. We deserve nothing but God's wrath and hell. So what hope is there for us? Here's a second point. Even as Jesus was sentenced to crucifixion, God had a plan of salvation. I want you to turn with me to Acts 4.23. If not, just listen or go home and read about it. And Acts 4, um, 23, this is after Christ rose from the dead. The early church in Jerusalem, it's persecuted by the same authorities that persecuted Jesus. The saints have heard their threats. They now reflect on Psalm 2, which we also read earlier in our own service, and they launch into 
a prayer based on that psalm in Acts 4.23. So let's listen in, and then I'll start reading from verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So go back to verses 27 and 28. Against God's holy servant, Jesus Christ, there's this injustice league. Herod, Pilate, Jews, and Gentiles gathered together. But they will not win in the end. They could not intend apart from the superintending of God. Pilate delivered Jesus to the will of the Jewish leaders, but God's will was being accomplished. They must do whatever God's hand and purpose determined before to be done. They placed Christ on the cross, but God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. There's the answer to our sin problems. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the eternal penalty of sins we've committed as our perfect substitutionary sacrifice. His payment is effective and complete because he is Christ, God's son, the king of the nations, God's servant, the innocent man. He suffered injustice to make us just. That's why he also rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return. The enemy sat in judgment over him, but the Son of Man sits on the right hand of the power of God. Before it's too late, we must repent of our rebellion and pride, turn to Jesus for salvation. There's no way we can be good enough for heaven. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. With genuine trust in the Lord, we don't have to fear judgment day. In fact, we pray and confidently ask him, Oh, come quickly. Hallelujah. Oh, come quickly, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son who suffered for our justification. Lord, we thank you that as we see uh, just all kinds of injustice in this world, and as we just groan under that, as we just wane, as we just are in agony, we know that your son knows how we feel. And Lord, we thank you that there is a judgment day coming and that we can be ready for it through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is 
the perfect sacrifice for us. And Lord, help us to just realize this. And as we live our own lives, as we face our own persecutions, help us to look to you, look to your son and his example and sacrifice. And we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.